offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Tryon Pilgrimage. This is Prem and I have the pleasure of joining you all from our studios at the Shri Satyasai Media Center. This is a program through which we study the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. Simultaneously, we also go through Swami's Gita Vahini and the various other discourses where Swami has elucidated the concepts that is spoken in the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the 8th chapter of the Gita and we, I think, can say are in the middle of that chapter. It's a chapter in which a very important aspect is discussed of how must a spiritual aspirant look forward to the parting moments in life? What kind of preparation one has to go through to ensure that the time when the soul departs from the body, prayanakale as Krishna has been repeatedly calling it, the moment of the journey, how one must be with regards to one's state of mind, what kind of control and detachment one should have towards one's body and one's physical abilities. All of that is discussed in this part of the Bhagavad Gita, the 8th chapter. And in the process of that, the chapter also speaks about the nature of God. And there is a reason why both of that is connected and that's what we've been seeing in this particular section of the Gita and as I summarize the two verses that we covered last time, it will remind us of this very connection between knowing the nature of the Lord or trying to understand the qualities of the Lord and the importance of it with regards to one's final moments. We covered two verses last time, verse 9 and 10. And the most important point covered in the ninth verse is what I just mentioned. We saw how when Krishna uses the term anusmarana as a command. It means constant contemplation and also the right or true contemplation of God. So the need to understand or picture God's nature in the true sense is very important and becomes very critical for this command of anusmarana to be followed. So in the ninth verse, Krishna gives eight terms or phrases that describe God, which can be used to contemplate upon the nature of God in the last moments of life. And we've seen also, when we say in the last moments of life, it doesn't mean that you start towards the end of your life. Only when this is made a practice through life, through one's good and bad times. That's why Krishna said in one of the verses, Sarveshu Kaleshu. At all times, if one is able to contemplate thus, automatically in the last moments it will come to one's mind. So he gives these eight phrases that one can contemplate upon and as we have seen these are all drawn from various Upanishads and what that means is these are understandings of God that are drawn from the experience of spiritual inquirers who have sought to understand the nature of God. So these eight Names or terms that are mentioned in the ninth verse of the eighth chapter are Kavim, the all knowing one, Puranam, the ancient and the eternal, Anushasitaram, the ordainer of all things, Anoraniyam, the subtler than the subtlest, 
Sarvasya Dhataram, the basis, the Adhara of all things. Achintya Rupam, one whose form is inconceivable. Aditya Varnam, with the splendor of the sun as his complexion. He is self-effulgent, that's what it means as we understood. Tamasa Parastat, the one who is beyond all darkness, who makes known even darkness to us. So these are the eight beautiful terms that are used to describe God and we went through the meaning of each one of these terms because Swami has very beautifully explained them. Whatever explanation that we went through last time were completely from Swami's Gita Vahini and if anybody wants to reread that section, it's in the 16th chapter of the Vahini. So that's the reference for whatever we discussed with regards to these eight terms in the episode last week. In the 10th verse, Krishna says, and what Krishna says in the 10th verse is not complete. It is going to be completed in the verses that we'll be seeing today. But Krishna says there, Prayana Kale Manasa Achalena At the time of death, with mind unshaken, Bhaktya Yuktaha Yoga Balena Cha Endowed with devotion and by the power of yoga, Pranam Aveshya Samyak Bhruvoho Madhye having placed the prana properly in the middle of the eyebrows, satam param purusha mupayati divyam. He, whoever is able to do all this in the last moments, prayanakale, he reaches that resplendent supreme person. Purusham param divyam. So that is what we saw in the episode last week. As I said, the 10th verse mentions a few things. Krishna is going to add on to those things in the verses that we are going to see today. And a mention that I made last time was, it is also a description of a yogic way of leaving one's body, right? The shlokas that preceded this were in the form of an instruction. Like Krishna said, think of me like this, like the one which we just went through. Or when Krishna says, Anusmarana Sarveshu Kaleshu, that was a command but these necessarily need not be a command these might be a description of a person who leaves the body when having lived a life like what Krishna said if you lead your life like this this is the kind of death that you will have because these are very subtle explanations too but through yogic practices also this can be attained to a certain extent and uh, some of those things as I said is going to be further explained in the verses that we'll go through today. So without any more delay, we'll go to the first verse that we're going to discuss today, the 11th verse of the 8th chapter. As always, we'll listen to it in the voice of Brother Sham. I'll give you a very brief meaning after that. And then we will discuss in detail what Krishna says there. Yadaksharam Veda Vido Vadanti Vishanti adyata yovita raga Yadichanto brahmacharyan charanti Tate padam sangrahena pravakshe. I shall speak to you briefly of that immutable goal which the knowers of the Vedas declare, into which enter the diligent ones free from attachment an aspiring for which people practice celibacy. So that's the 11th verse of the 8th chapter. Till now Krishna spoke about 
what happens to someone who thinks of him in the last moments then in the shlokas we saw last week krishna spoke of it in terms of yogic practices or that is one way of looking at it not to strictly closet that shloka in that section but it is one way of looking at it because the essence is krishna speaks of the end of a noble life and in the process what he is also doing is validating some of the scriptural understandings right that is what uh, we've seen not only in this section even in earlier portions of the bhagavad gita that is one thing that the gita is meant to do that is one thing an avatar does as part of his task when he comes down in a human form and as i said before i don't think we need to worry about the specifics and i'm not saying this to in any way brush aside these details where krishna says that you have to focus your prana on the spot between the eyebrows and things like that i'm not saying that we should completely discard that but those are not things that we need to really be worried about at this point in time and we will also see why i'm saying this when krishna concludes this portion right whenever we have seen this in the gita and even in other texts there will be a portion where the teacher explains certain aspects but in summary what he says it becomes more important and something that is like the carry home message as we will see that in this section also maybe we will not come to that shloka this week but when we come to it probably in the next week we will see why what i am saying is not to simply be little what krishna is saying here or be little yogic practices but we can see the tone of krishna's command itself leading to that but the point is krishna spoke about those who are able to recall god in the last moments and he also gave those eight beautiful descriptions of the nirakara saguna right that's what we had seen from the gita vahini so he says all of these eight descriptions come under nirakara saguna the lord who cannot be given a form and hence is called nirakara because he is not defined by any one form he is all forms so he is nirakara but he is saguna you give some good attributes or noble attributes to the lord for the process of contemplation right so all of these eight beautiful descriptions fall under nirakara saguna and that if contemplated during one's life the mind and the senses come under control the prana will be placed between the eyebrows and the individual will be able to focus on the self without any effort will be able to think of god without much effort the next section it is said is the part where krishna speaks of those who have contemplated on god through the use of a symbol we will come to that shortly it's not yet mentioned in this shloka but this whole section is spoken of as krishna referring to contemplating on the lord through a symbol or a word or a sound and this word or sound is mentioned in the scriptures as the most befitting representation of brahman as we saw till now anusmarana is contemplating on god in a way he has to be contemplated upon in line with the descriptions in the scriptures each time i say in line with scriptures let us not think that we are giving too much importance to the scriptures or some ancient text this is not some kind of fanaticism towards any religious text the scriptures the vedas and the upanishads themselves stand as a representation of the experience of seekers who have sought the truth and who have seen it 
that is why we call it paroksha right the truth as seen by others needless to say the final validity comes only when the experience becomes our own right that is why though in all these scriptures the importance is given to them the importance is given to vedas and upanishads and so on and so forth nothing is more important than one's own experience at no point krishna is asking us to move away from our own experience in fact all of these scriptures use our experience that we will see even in this week's episode use the experiences that we undergo to point to something that is higher that we miss otherwise if we are not pointed to that we will be lost in the mundane experience and we will not see what is the higher goal that it is pointing to right so that is why these scriptures are to be used as map right to the journey that we are trying to make and nothing more than that and that is why it is important to every time say that descriptions in line with the scriptures acting in line with the scriptures this is not to completely remove the need for our own self inquiry and reasoning that is the most important vedanta never asks us to move away from that coming back to this part of the gita now krishna is going to refer to another method by which god can be contemplated upon but he doesn't refer to it directly in this shloka he says i am going to tell you about the state that is reached by the noble ones right that's precisely what he says here but there are enough indirect hints that he drops even when he's making this simple statement and of course krishna doesn't keep us hanging for too long because in the very next shloka he proceeds to talk about what uh, he hints at in the shloka so what does he say in the shloka he says yath aksharam that imperishable veda vidaha knowers of the vedas vadanti yat that which they declare yatayah the self control vishanti enter vitaragah having been freed from attachment yat ichchantah desiring which brahmacharyam charanti brahmacharya is practiced tat padam that goal sangrahena in brief te pravakshe i will declare to you krishna says i will describe to you in brief that which vedavidaha the knowers of veda declare meaning that which they see or experience at the end of their spiritual quest i am going to describe that yat yatayah vishanti vitaragaha we have come across many of the words mentioned in this statement already yati means someone who has given up all pleasures an ascetic a sanyasi or in a more broader sense someone who has attained self control right so yatayah is one who has attained self control vitaragaha again we have come across this term having given up all attachments that to which the yatis reach after all the attachments have fallen away krishna says i am going to talk about that then he says yat ichchantah brahmacharyam charanti we have spoken before about brahmacharya in a very simple sense it means a celibate person but brahmacharya truly speaking it means one for whom brahman is the main focus in life there are no other commitments there are no other distractions 
such a person is referred to as brahmacharya and one phase of life where this is easy to follow is also referred to as brahmacharya but actually brahmacharya means for one who has given up all other distractions and all other commitments and pursuits and pursues only the brahman so desiring brahman is referred to as brahmacharya so krishna is saying i will describe that briefly tatte padam sangrahena pravakshye that ultimate state i will describe to you briefly which desiring which people practice brahmacharya though krishna is saying this now in the very next verse he doesn't start describing the state right because we are going so slowly in the bhagavad gita so if you read this as a separate shloka it appears like krishna is saying that i'm going to talk about something and he's going to start talking about it in the next verse it doesn't happen that way it's going to be a little more while before krishna starts speaking about that but in the next verse he continues to speak about how one's last moments need to be something that he has been speaking so far but what is the hint that krishna drops that i was talking about before i gave that word toward meaning this shloka in its structure is very similar to few statements that are made in some of the upanishads in fact one of the verses from an upanishad that i've already quoted on this program and that is also a clue of what krishna is talking about here just to refresh your memory it was in that epic conversation between young nachiketa and lord yama where nachiketa asks yama what is that which is beyond dharma and adharma beyond cause and effect past and future and the answer that yama gives is in some ways very similar to what krishna says here in fact because he also says that i will tell you about that which the vedas proclaim that the tapas we speak about and that deciding which brahmacharis practice brahmacharya which is very similar to what krishna says here so in that conversation yama then goes on to speak about pranava or omkara so though krishna has not mentioned omkara or pranava or om in this particular verse the next two verses are considered as verses which krishna speaks about omkara and meditating on omkara during the last moments of one's life so in one way the connection can be made with the word aksharam that lord krishna is using in this verse the first line in the shloka was yadaksharam vedavido vadanti and we translated the word aksharam as the indestructible based on the usage in the past few verses right because krishna had referred to brahman as aksharam but the word aksharam is also used to represent a letter an alphabet or a syllable i think we discussed this also when we talk about spoken language the last unit of language which cannot be further broken down is referred to as aksharam right just like how you refer to as an alphabet or a syllable so if we take that meaning for aksharam in this verse krishna says i will tell you about that alphabet or that syllable which the knowers of veda glorify yadaksharam vedavido vadanti i will tell you about that aksharam that alphabet or that sound which the knowers of veda glorify and if you were to take that that will be in line with yama's answer in kathopanishad to nachiketa we will come back to om because that's what we're going to talk about pretty much through this entire episode and the significance of 
chanting or meditating om in the last moments of one's life but i think before that what we will do is we will go through the next shloka and shortly thereafter the shloka after that too so that we get an idea of what krishna is saying in these shlokas because this one the next one and the one to follow all of that together represent the discussion on omkara in this particular section of the bhagavad gita so we listen to the next shloka which is the 12th verse in the 8th chapter and then i'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we'll discuss and take it forward sarvadvarani samyamya manohrudi niruddhya cha मूर्ध्याधायात्मनःप्राणम् आस्थितो योगधारणाम् Having controlled all the passages, having confined the mind in the heart, and having fixed his own vital force in the head, and then continuing in the firmness of yoga. So that's the twelfth verse. and uh, from the meaning itself you could have made out that the statement that krishna is making is not yet complete in his commentary adi shankara mentions something that krishna says here along with that which krishna said in the previous shloka because in that verse krishna had said place the prana in the region between the eyebrows right i think it is the uh, 10th shloka where he said place the prana in the region between the eyebrows so to that instruction krishna adds here sarvadvarani samyamya having controlled all gates or entrances so which are the dwaras which are the gates the senses so sarvadvarani samyamya means indra samyamya is what krishna is talking about the control of the senses of course we also discussed about self control in the previous week's episode and we spoke of what swami has said on this regard in the gita vahini in the chapter so we'll not go back to that then krishna goes on to say manohridi niruddhyacha having the mind confined to the heart this again we discussed the last time too what it means to have the mind turned inward and placed on the heart there is a very beautiful verse that is attributed to ramana maharishi i made a short reference to that last week too the story goes that one of uh, Ramana Maharshi's young devotees writes a Sanskrit phrase on a piece of paper which goes hridaya kuhara madhye he writes that on a piece of paper and then he leaves it and he goes out on some work when he returns he finds that that statement has been converted into a couplet in Sanskrit and when he asks around he realizes that Ramana Maharshi himself had completed the verse and that shloka which is very famous attributed to ramana's philosophy and goes hridaya kuhara madhye kevalam brahma matram yaham yahamiti sakshat atmarupena bhati the meaning of that beautiful verse is in the middle of the cave of this heart hridaya kuhara madhye in this cave of the heart right in the middle kevalam brahma matram brahman alone is present in that pure state of brahman it is there yaham aham iti sakshat it means proclaiming aham aham i am i am atmarupena bhati it is glowing lustrously in the form of the self right that is why that hridaya kuhara that heart is supposed to be the seat of 
this feeling of aham. So when Krishna says manohridi niruddhya, it means the mind is turned inwards and focused on the self, which is Brahman, that aham, which is Brahman. Earlier Krishna had said, a jnani is one who sees everything and everyone as an expression of his or herself. Right? That's a statement that Krishna made in an earlier chapter. So this is not literal when we say that the mind should be turned within into the heart. It is not something that the mind has to dive into this heart cave or something like that. I think it is a representation of this idea that the mind dwells on the self. Whatever is seen, whatever experience one is having, everything is seen as an expression of that self. And that is what Manu Hridi Niruddhya actually means, in my opinion. Then he goes on to say, Moodni Adhaya. Moodnadhaya. Moodni means the top of the head. So, Moodnya Adhaya means having placed in the top of the head Atmanaha Pranam, one's breath or life breath. How does one do this? Krishna says, Yoga Dharanam. Dharana is to place something steadily, to keep something on hold, right? As we have seen, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. It is uh, spoken of as the final three stages in Patanjali's uh, Ashtanga Yoga. So, Dharana is to keep yourself steady. So, Yoga Dharanam means through the practice of Yoga, the Dharana that is mastered is used to achieve this Moodni Adhaya Atmanaha Pranam, placing the life breath in that top of the head. Astitaha, the one who is able to establish oneself in this state. So again, this is a description of a yogi's abilities and what he or she achieves through many, many years of rigorous yogic practice. So the statement Krishna is making is not yet complete. As I said, it's still midway of a sentence. He completes that in the next shloka. So we'll quickly go to the next shloka. We'll listen to it. We will get a complete picture of what Krishna is saying here. Then we will discuss what Krishna has said in these three shlokas, which is very, very important. And we will see why it is so important too. Om Ityekaksharam Brahma Vyaharan Mamanusmaran Yafprayatityajandeham Sayati Paramangatim he who departs by leaving the body while uttering the single syllable Om, which is Brahman, and thinking of me, he attains the supreme goal. So here Krishna finally mentions Om. Having described the various other yogic procedures like concentrating the pranas, holding the breath, controlling the senses, concentrating the mind on the self and so on and so forth, Krishna finally adds one more condition to it. He says, Om iti ekaksharam brahma. Om, which is the one-syllabled Brahman. We will come back to what this means. Om iti ekaksharam brahma. Vyaharan, uttering, maam anusmaran, remembering me. Yaha prayati, who departs. Tyajan deham leaving the body, sayati paramam gatim. 
he attains the supreme goal so the final condition is one who leaves chanting om swami had clarified this point earlier itself and i had mentioned it also swami writes in the gita vahini that at this point arjuna gets a doubt how can i chant if i am supposed to have closed all the senses right sarvadharan samyamya krishna had said if i were to withdraw all my senses is it possible for me to utter or chant anything right so swami immediately clarifies that it does not mean that you have to utter it though here krishna is saying vyaharan which means to utter it is not that it has to be uttered because when krishna tells here the yogic practice of placing the prana on top of your head it means you have inhaled and you cease to exhale right that is how the body is given up in that yogic practice so is it ever possible for you to utter anything when you're not exhaling right so can you chant om if you're not supposed to exhale so swami clarifies that in gita vaini swami says that it is not so you have to meditate upon om another point that swami clarifies in the gita vaini is there is a misconception that this practice of chanting om is not permitted for some people or some genders or some category of individuals swami makes it very clear there is absolutely nothing like that there can be nothing more inaccurate than that misconception swami says krishna clearly states whoever meditates upon om during the last moments reaches god there is no other qualification required there is no other condition that has been put by krishna there but for the mind to meditate on om as we've been discussing life has to be led in a certain way there are certain disciplines one has to follow there are certain sadhanas one has to perform for the mind to be able to meditate upon om there is no other physical condition for that there is no condition related to one's birth or one's uh, lineage or anything like that but if one has to be able to meditate on om in those last moments there is a certain lifestyle and what krishna says here is not another option right it is not like either you think of swami either you think of krishna or you chant om this is not been given as another option or another way to give up life the same state the state in which you give up this body you will reach god that same state is being described in different ways it was described from the point of view of a devotee it was described through yogic practices and now it is being described through this one syllabled mantra om so that it also gives this sacred mantra its place of significance in the gita that's probably one of the ways of looking at it so let's go back to the first statement that krishna makes here om iti ekaksharam brahma this single syllable word om is brahman as i said the word akshara means the indivisible so when we look at it from the point of view of language the alphabet or syllable is akshara the last indivisible component of spoken language when we see from that meaning this statement is om is the single syllable representation of brahman but akshara brahman also means that indestructible supreme where the word aksharam is used as an adjective to brahman though i am saying this i am not too sure if from the point of view of grammar sanskrit grammar 
is it correct to look at aksharam as an adjective in the statement but i'm just making an assumption so let us just assume that so if we see aksharam the indestructible as an adjective for brahman the statement ekaksharam brahman means the one indestructible supreme and this statement om iti ekaksharam brahma means om is this one indestructible supreme both these statements sound similar but there is a slight difference and in that difference there is also the significance that i'm trying to draw home here om is spoken of here as the word a single syllabled word that represents brahman in other words it's a name for god right it's a name for brahman what is a word which is a representation for an object it's a name right a name is what is a word that represents an object so what is the role of a word that represents an object or an entity in our everyday experience i'm not talking about something that is beyond our experience in our everyday experience there is a word what is the role of that word swami explains this in his discourses in a very beautiful way in a very simple and uh, catchy way if i could put it that way in sanskrit the word for word is pada right the sanskrit translation for word is pada and an object is called padartha so if you look at it pada is simply a sound right when i say a word like book computer mouse tiger lion all of these are nothing but different sounds that are created using my faculty of speech but it is meaningful because it represents something either an object or an event or an entity or a person otherwise if you remove that object or entity that it represents it is only a sound just like ah who that it represents nothing so it is just a sound so when we say a word the word like book the object book or computer is what gives that sound a meaning so swami says that which gives pada the word an artham a meaning is called padartham now what is the function of the sound that we make to represent anything so pada is a word padartha is the object pada is a sound padartha is that which gives this padam and artham this sound a meaning so when i'm explaining to you or talking to you generally having a conversation with you suppose i make a statement i read a book last week the moment i utter that statement my words bring to your mind the object that is represented by the word book isn't it when i say i read a book that comes to your mind when i say i feel like eating an ice cream there is no ice cream in front of me or for that matter i'm talking to you over the radio but the moment i say this statement i feel like eating an ice cream i have managed to bring this object into your mind right through this sound i have brought that object into your mind if that object is before me when i see it it enters my mind right that's how we we conceive everything whatever we see gets reflected in our mind but in the absence of the object in front of me my word does something which is very similar it brings that object into the mind 
even though that object is not present in front of me or I am not able to see that object. So here we say, Om is a Pada for which Brahman is the Padartha. When we speak of Brahman, the complexity becomes even more because Brahman is Achintya Rupam. As Krishna said in the verse we saw last week, it's a form that is inconceivable, Achintya Rupam. It does not have any one form. So all the more reason why you need a sound or a term that represents Brahman. And Om is that word. That's why Swami would often say, Om is the name of God. I think there is even a discourse with that title. One of the Satisai speaks discourses. Name itself is Om is the name of God. Swami would also say that if you want to connect with God, if you are making a prayer and you want to connect with God, just like how if I want to connect with you, I dial a number. Swami says if you want to connect with God, the number that you must dial is Om. Because Om iti ekaksharam brahma. But why the word Om? Isn't the word Brahman also a word, a name? Isn't that good enough? Why you have to conceive of another word, Om, and say that this represents Brahman, when you already have the word Brahman? Not only that, we have so many names for God too. Why this particular word and what is its speciality? Going back to what we were talking about, the effect of words on the mind. When I tell you I want to eat an ice cream, I have created an image in your mind. But that image is still quite vague because ice cream itself is a very vague word. A lot of things come under this word called ice cream. Now the image I've created in your mind is not very specific. And let us say I tell you I feel like having chocolate ice cream. Now the image that I've created in your mind is a little more specific, isn't it? If I go further and give a more specific description, the image created in your mind becomes more and more specific. So I say that, you know, I feel like having this ice cream which has these ingredients, which is like this. So in that sense, this sound Om, as an utterance, is considered closest to Brahman. Why is that so? We will come to that explanation in a bit. But I will add one more angle to that effect of words in the mind before we come to the explanation of why Om is a better representation of God. We will go back to the ice cream. Well, quite a bad example to give at this time, given the weather is so cool and definitely none of us are thinking of eating an ice cream. Definitely not me. But maybe ice cream is a beautiful way to explain and understand God because Swami would often tell us as students, God is like ice cream. Now, many times we've heard this from Swami, God is like ice cream. God is cool like ice cream, white like ice cream, sweet like ice cream and joy like ice cream, Swami would say, because those were the days when Swami would invariably distribute joy ice cream. Thanks to Mr. Java, who is the owner of that joy ice cream company, a very, very great and ardent devotee of Swami. And he was the one who used to bring ice creams for students. So Swami would play and say that ice cream and God are very similar. God is joy like ice cream. So maybe ice cream is not, after all, such a bad idea to understand Brahman. Coming back to what we were talking about, so now I have told you, for instance, chocolate ice cream. And I give you a little more specification. I say, oh, chocolate ice cream with chocolate chips and nuts and something like that. Now the image that I'm creating in your mind has become a little more specific. But let us say I add to that description 
a very specific name or tell you a very specific flavor that is being sold let's say in the ice cream shop in the ashram and sometime when you visited prashant nilayam you've had that ice cream right now the image that i create by using that word and using that specific name becomes even more clear and when the word i used to describe something is able to recall an experience something you have already experienced yourself then the mental image becomes much much more vivid it is no more from just saying ice cream you brought it down to something that i have experienced it before and sometimes you can literally you know recall that taste and recall that experience and recall that setting in which you would have had that ice cream that experience of recalling that object in your mind becomes much much more vivid om as a sound is capable of doing this is what the scriptures declare why is om a very apt representation of the supreme divine sami would recite in his discourses a sanskrit verse that describes god i'm sure most of you would have known it or heard it from sami in one of the discourses sami would say shabd ब्रह्ममयी चराचरमयी ज्योतिर्मयी वाङ्मयी नित्यानंदमयी परात्परमयी मायामयी श्रीमयी मीनिंग गॉड इज द एम्बॉडिमेंट ऑफ साउंड द मूविंग एंड द अनमूविंग लाइट स्पीच ऑफ इटर्नल ब्लिस ऑफ परफेक्शन ऑफ डेल्यूजन एंड ऑफ वेल्थ एंड दिस डिस्क्रिप्शन Swami would say in his discourses, applies even to this ekaksharam Brahma Om, because as a sound, it is all pervasive. It is also the source of all speech. When merely chanted regularly, even without understanding what it represents, you can attain Aishwarya's. This is something that people say that you can experience if you are a person who has the habit of chanting Omkara regularly. there are benefits that are so obvious right you can experience it in your real life it is not something that is out of our reach right that's why swami has made it a practice in the ashram the 21 omkaras or the practice of chanting om in the hostels because the aishwarya as all the benefits that one gets out of this is very obvious even if you don't understand how om represents brahman and what is the essence of om it doesn't matter merely as a sound it can bring to us certain benefits that's why it is shri mai it has the capability it represents all these aishwaryas then swami says this sound is in the moving as well as in the still close your ears completely put your finger into your ear sockets and close it completely swami says you can still hear the sound om or you stand in an empty space and you listen to the moving breeze you still hear the sound om so it is there in the moving and in the unmoving chara charamayi chara and achara it is represented by the moving and the unmoving even as a sound the qualities that it possesses bring to the mind the nature of this brahman we all are trying to recall isn't it because it is all pervasive it is in everything and that is the nature of brahman here we are trying to more specifically speak about recalling it in the last moments so when you observe om as what it represents through all this it is more directly clearly pointing out to brahman brahman as a word is a sanskrit word 
probably I'm not even pronouncing it right, right? That's that's a possibility. Or if your native language is something that doesn't allow you to pronounce the word Brahman clearly and as it should be, you're saying a word that is different. But when we talk about Om, the qualities of this single-syllabled Om is very similar in nature to the Brahman that we are trying to recall. And when we are trying to recall Brahman, we are only trying to recall the nature of Brahman, not necessarily that word or that idea, what it is. Then Swami says it is Vangmai, the very source of speech. This again we had discussed when Krishna made the statement, I think in the fifth chapter or the sixth chapter where he said, I am the Om in the Vedas, right? How Om is the very source of all Vedas and in fact very source of every spoken word. If you recall what we had discussed then, we had spoken of the four stages of speech. Vaikhari, when it is spoken, when it has already been expressed and the other person can hear it. Subtler than that is Madhyama, when the speech is formed as words but has not yet been uttered. It is still in the mind in the form of language but you have not yet uttered it. It is called Madhyama. Subtler than Madhyama is Pashyanti. When the words are not yet been committed to any language, it is still in the form of thought. It has been visualized, but it has still not been put in language. So at this state, that sound is even beyond language. And finally, the fourth is called Para, the transcendental form, even before it is committed to thought. And we saw how that Para is Pranava. So that Om is the source of all sound and all language, the Vedas, good words, bad words, soft words, sweet words, everything has its source in the Pranava. That is why it is Vangmai. Not only that, Om also represents an experience that we have through our life. In fact, an experience that we have every day. I think the last time when we discussed about Om, when Krishna had made that statement, I had made a mention about the Mandukya Upanishad and then I had also made the statement that Adi Shankaracharya says if there is only one Upanishad that you can read let it be the Mandukya Upanishad and the reason being the Mandukya speaks about the significance of the Pranava Mantra of Omkara. There is another interesting Upanishad which is referred to as Muktika Upanishad the reason why it is called Muktika is the whole Upanishad, like many other Upanishads, is in the form of a dialogue between two individuals. And the Muktika is a dialogue between Lord Rama and Hanuman. Quite interesting. Where Hanuman asks about what is Mukti and how to achieve Mukti. Mukti means liberation, right? The other reason why this Upanishad is very special is this is one of the Upanishads which mentions all the other 108 Upanishads which are there. So in this conversation between Lord Hanuman and Rama, Hanuman asks, people speak of various types of Mukti. Are they all the same or are they different? So this is the question he asks Rama. And Rama goes on to explain how you can get Mukti from this human birth you can get mukti from this loka. You can reach a higher loka and that is also called a form of mukti. And all of these different kinds of muktis can be got, he says, by worshipping me. But then he goes on to say, the truest mukti is kaivalyam, the absolute state of jnana, of bliss. 
Having said that Kaivalyam is the truest state of Mukti, Rama goes on to say, for this Kaivalyam, reading the Mandukya Upanishad is enough. Read only Mandukya Upanishad and you can reach Kaivalyam. Then he goes on to say, after reading the Mandukya Upanishad, if you have still not got knowledge, then you may consider reading the other 10 Mukhya Upanishads. That is the level of importance that is given to this Upanishad, the Mandukya. And the reason being, it speaks about this Ekaksharam Brahma. That is the kind of high status that is given to this Upanishad. So as we saw, the Om Asa Pada, a word, is supposed to create in the mind the thoughts of Brahman. As a sound, it has the qualities of all pervasiveness, being the source of all vibration from which all sounds and all word and all language comes, which again is the same nature of Brahman. Brahman is the source of everything, moving, unmoving, living, sentient and insentient. Everything comes from Brahman. So that same nature is represented by this pranava. But the pranava represents much more than that. And for one to understand the complete significance, firstly and then later recall it at the time of death. Right? One is to understand, one is to study it, one is to practice it. And then finally at the time of death, one has to be able to recall it. That calls for sadhana. And that is why this is sometimes referred to as Pranovo Pasana, the sadhana where pranava or the chanting of the pranava itself is taken up as upasana, as a form of worship. Simply put, the sound om in our mind should be completely identified with Brahman and its absolute nature. And for this connection to be made between this pada and that padartha, you need upasana, you need sadhana, right? That is why Krishna says in the 13th verse that we just heard Om iti ekaksharam brahma vyaharan maam anusmaran Recalling Om and performing Anusmarana Both of these go hand in hand Anusmarana being recalling God in a way he has to be contemplated So this connection between this pada Om and that nature of the absolute Brahman has to be made and that has to be made through one's life. That cannot be made five minutes before we are ready to part this body, right? I don't think this one episode or even a few episodes are enough for us to completely understand the pranava. Forget about understanding it, even to discuss. I don't think it's possible to do it as part of the show. Maybe in some point in the future, we will, Swami will give us an opportunity to study, learn and grasp what is referred to as pranavo pasana, maybe in some program on this radio, if not me, somebody I'm sure much more qualified than me, Swami will use as an instrument for us to contemplate on this. But since we have made a reference to the Mandukya Upanishad, maybe I will just share some thoughts from there why this Omkara is considered to represent that Brahman. This is what the Upanishad says. Everything that we see and experience in this universe is Brahman. A statement that we have come across many times. But that absolute is present in four forms. The first is referred to as Vaishvanara. Elsewhere in Swami's discourses, Swami says this Vaishvanara is also referred to as Virata or Vishva. This aspect of Brahman covers everything that is material 
everything that is manifest. We can see, we can feel, we can experience. Everything in this manifest world comes under this Vaishwanara aspect of Brahman. And the Upanishad says that the field of activity for the Vaishwanara is the waking state. Then comes the Taijasa aspect. The subtle realm and the field of activity for Taijasa is the dream state. This is not something that can be seen. This aspect of Brahman is beyond the senses. right? And that's why it is equated to the dream state. In the dream state, all your senses have been cut off, but you still can see, you still can experience, you still are undergoing that. You're able to sense what is happening, right? That's why the Taijasa aspect of Brahman is spoken of as being active in the dream state. Elsewhere in Swami's discourses, this Taijasa is also referred to as the Hiranyagarbha. The third state of Brahman is Pragna, and its field of activity is the deep sleep state or Sushupti where all the cravings of the mind are stilled. There are no desires, there are no emotions, there is only stillness. Something that we experience every day in our life and if we are not experiencing it, it is very difficult to continue living, right? Because it's part of our experience. Waking state, dream state and the deep sleep state is something that we experience every day of our life. But even in the Sushupti state, deep sleep, the mind is present. The mind has not been sublimated yet. But the mind is in a state of suspension. It has been stilled for a brief time. That is why the Brahman is completely represented or there is a fourth state where the Brahman is in its absolute nature. And this state is called Turiya, which simply means the fourth. Right? There is no other way you can describe it because it is beyond all descriptions. Here there is no such thing as turning inward or turning outward. There is nothing like activity, there is nothing like silence. It is beyond all of that. And in this state, the Brahman is in the supreme state of pure consciousness. And the reason why these are equated to Jagrat, Swapna and Sushupti, wakefulness, dream and deep sleep is because we experience it every day. As I said, that is what the Vedanta is trying to do. Take experiences that we are witness to and then tell us what it is trying to point out to us. And then raise our understanding to that Brahman that we are trying to understand. So we experience Brahman in these states every day, but we don't observe it consciously. And this is what I said. It is taken from everyday experience and connected to the supreme nature of Brahman. Then the Mandukya goes on to say, how these three states are represented in these four states are represented in the four sounds or four parts of Omkar. The three sounds A, U, M. Right? It's not simply OM, though we write OM as OM. Swami has clarified this many times. It is coming together of three sounds A, U, and M. So these three sounds. Swami says, are identical, the Mandukya Upanishad states, and of course Swami has also spoken about it, are identical with the three states of waking, dreaming and sleeping. The fourth state, Turiya, is to be realized only in the silence that follows after you have chanted the Om. Swami has again spoken of this, where you start with A, ah, go on to the sound U, 
then merge that u sound in the m and that sound of ma slowly fades into the silence swami says that silence is also part of this omkar chanting and that silence stands for the turiya state swami also goes on to say how these three sounds a u and ma represent the three lokas bhur bhuvah and suvah and that is to represent how this pranava pervades all these three lokas so all sounds in this world are born from om alone those who deem om to be just a sound swami says this probably i'll read out the exact words of swami this is from a discourse that swami delivered in 1991 28th of may swami says all sounds in this world are born from om alone those who deem om to be just a sound those who do not go beyond its mechanical recitation receive only worldly benefits from its repetition but those who contemplate on the significance of om while chanting it with concentration are eligible to live in the chandraloka or heaven after death so say the scriptures later in another discourse in the same series swami says but when you chant om understanding the significance and chant it as a sadhana without any expectation you reach the fourth state of turiya where the mandukya upanishad says when contemplating on om in that true state you identify with the self of all beings a state which has been described by krishna any number of times till the point in this gita as the ultimate state one has to reach identifying one self with every self right and that is why om is given such an important place in vedanta and of course as i said what i spoke of is very 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 limited even compared to the amount of literature that is available and the amount of side literature that is available but i think we will end it there we'll conclude with that and i most humbly offer this effort to swami's lotus feet dear listeners do join me again next week for the resumption of this gita series a triune pilgrimage as i said we are still in the middle of the eighth chapter we'll take it on from here if you have anything to say any comments to share if i've said something that is not agreeable to you if i've said something that is not in alignment with the scriptures and you would like to point that out to me please feel free i would love to hear from you if there are any other thoughts you can always share it with me you can send me a mail or you can send it to our feedback mail or our whatsapp number i thank you again for your patient listening till i meet you next week keep safe happy listening jai sai ram